We would like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Preborn. When a mother meets her baby on an ultrasound and hears their heartbeat, it's a divine connection. And the majority of the time, she will choose life. But she can't do it without our help. Preborn needs us, the pro-life community, to come alongside her. One ultrasound is just $28. To donate, dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby or visit preborn.com. Jenna Ellis in the morning on American Family Radio. Jenna, first, good morning. Great to be with you, the queen of talk radio in America. The left does not want to honor our freedoms, and we have a responsibility to fight back. I love talking about the things of God because of truth and the biblical worldview. Fill that void with a vision that runs so deep that it dilutes the woke agenda. Well, thank you, Jenna. Right from the beginning, I knew you, so it's an honor to be with you. and You're doing really well. Proud of you. Former legal counsel to President Trump. Jenna Ellis. Well, the possibility of a shutdown and further complications are looming over the Senate in Washington. And this is complicated because the Senate GOP is divided about whether to jam up the House over Ukraine funding. So a stopgap spending bill needs to be passed by September 30th to avoid a government shutdown. Some of us would say that, you know, the government isn't uh, really that essential in all parts. They told us that we weren't essential, but actually they aren't. So we'll see how that goes. And uh, certainly there are uh, various opinions that are flying on social media from uh, senators and also, of course, House members as well. Uh, but the Senate seems a lot more concerned, not about uh, keeping the government open, but about ditching the informal dress code enforcement. So according to Just the News, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has reportedly told the sergeant at arms that the chamber's informal dress code for its members no longer needs to be enforced. He said in a statement to Axios, senators will be able to choose what they want to wear on the Senate floor. I will continue to wear a suit. <laughs> the uh, A Senate official told the outlet uh, that the rule will go into effect this week and it, pl- it applies only to senators. Staff members are still required to follow the old dress code. So this new rule will allow Pennsylvania Democrat Senator John Fetterman, who typically wears gym shorts and hoodies, to go to the Senate floor before and after the votes without wearing business attire. So there was a lot of reaction, surprisingly, from both sides of the aisle with uh, Morning Joe this morning actually ranting about that and uh, suggesting that a dress code should continue to be enforced. And, you know, if you've lost the libs, Chuck Schumer, maybe not so great. Uh, Katie Pavlik today uh, tweeted, Schumer proves once again he is an absolutely horrible majority leader. What a disgrace and disrespect to the institution. Get dressed for work, people. It's not that hard. And uh, one other social media commentator said, some people think this is a dumb thing to care about, but I care about it a lot. People who perpetually dress like slobs are either narcissists or nihilists. It's a sign of a society in rapid decay that we don't expect our leaders to even cosplay as dignified. So joining me now with more is our good friend O.W. Root, who goes by the moniker of Necktie Salvage on social media and comments on aesthetics and culture and how this integrates with a biblical worldview. So um, O.W. Root, I'm sure that uh, you, like everyone else, was just... 
disgusted, frankly, by uh, Chuck Schumer really suspending this, I think, to allow John Fetterman to come in his uh, hoodie and gym shorts to the floor of the U.S. Senate. I mean, really? Yeah, that's about right. It's just uh, another step in the general degeneration, essentially, of our civilization. And this is obviously all because of John Fetterman. And it's just disrespect. It's clear disrespect. I mean, think about this. There are millions of people every day in America who show up to work who have to make an effort to dress somewhat decently because they're required to. And John Fetterman is a senator, and he can't even manage to wear some, the most bare minimum uh, dress of decency when serving in the government of the United States of America, the most powerful empire in the entire world. And so this is just another step we see in the general cultural decay and degeneration. Yeah, and uh, Michael Knowles, our, our good friend from Daily Wire, tweeted this. The senator from Pennsylvania is so incapacitated that his colleagues changed the Senate rules rather than even attempt to have him dress like an adult. And I, I agree with that. But some of the pushback as well has been, um, you know, Pennsylvania elected him. They knew that this guy uh, dressed like a slob. And yet... Um, that's who they chose as uh, as their senator. And so to relax the, the dress code for him, uh, because maybe he needs some kind of special accommodation, what's so wrong with that? Well, it, it's pretty simple. He is a human being. He is capable of serving in the Senate. This is not asking him to do something that is physically incapable of doing. This is the thing about clothing. This is the thing about decorum. This is the thing about dress codes. It is not asking something of someone that is impossible to do. It is not asking someone who has never lifted weights to lift a car. You know, it's not asking someone to do something that is physically impossible. John Fetterman can wake up and dress. He has that suit. He's worn a suit before. All he has to do is go to his closet. It doesn't matter if the people of Pennsylvania elected him when he was wearing a hoodie. This is the standard that is expected. And what does it say? You know, Michael Knowles mentioned that about hubris. This is an insane level of hubris. Think of the kind of hubris you need to have. It's off the charts to say, I'm going to serve in the government of the United States, most powerful empire in all the world, and I can't even manage to put on, I can't manage to meet the expectations, and it's not impossible. Anybody can do this. Anybody can satisfy this expectation. And I'm speaking with O.W. Root, who goes by uh, the handle Necktie Salvage on social media and uh, talks about aesthetics and culture. And I think that there's um, a bigger cultural implication here, especially when we don't have our, uh, our our members of our government who are taking a lead in and actually being examples. And a lot of what I'm seeing um, on a cultural level is is really suggesting that, that we don't have to... Um, have pride or respect in our leaders anymore. I mean, when we're talking about um, what happened with uh, Lauren Boebert uh, last weekend and and some of the disgraceful behavior, uh, to put it mildly, uh, but then even just in terms of a dress code. I mean, I grew up in a uh, in the sort of legacy era of the formal court setting where 
Um, it was deemed incredibly inappropriate and against the dress code. And you'd be, you know, talked to by the judge if you didn't appear with a suit jacket on. It was decorum and respect for the court and for the bench and for what was going on in that chamber, because this is where justice happens. And there was a level of, of respect and awe for what was going on. And, and so to have, from a whole cultural standpoint, this notion that we can just wear whatever we want. It doesn't matter. We can look like slobs and everybody knows the difference between formal dress versus um, informal or slobby dress. And to say that that doesn't then have an impact on the culture around us and the attitude, I think, um, doesn't reflect reality. Uh, Absolutely. Think about this. So you go to a funeral. Are you going to wear a T-shirt? Are you going to wear a hoodie? Are you going to wear jeans? No. You're going to show respect. Think about... It would have been, if you cranked back the clock, 30s, 20s, early 20th century, it would have been, people had, it was tough. People, it was tough. But people had a sense of decency and dignity where they knew when to make their best effort to dress appropriately. And when we have, when we have no respect, as you said, for the government, or whether it's in court, all it shows is a, lowering and a flattening down. And our clothes, not only do they reflect our trajectory, but they can also reaffirm or accelerate that trajectory. Meaning when we dress with a sense of dignity and decency, it uplifts us and it sends us higher. When we dress with a sense of not that, degradation and slobbishness, it sends us down. And what's next? How about, how about we just don't wear clothes at all? Why is it, you know, if, if it's too difficult to wear a suit and John Fetterman has to wear a hoodie, how about no shirt at all? I mean, the, clothing is a sign of civilization itself. So where does this end? People like to say the slippery slope fallacy, blah, blah, blah. No, it's real. The slippery slope fallacy is not a fallacy. It's real. And where does it end? Mm-hmm. Yeah, what's the limiting principle then? And so if there isn't a dress code in the Senate chambers, yeah, I mean, why why can't a senator say, hey, I'm coming from a basketball game, so, you know, I didn't want to put a shirt back on. Uh, you know, yeah, I mean, exactly. And that's, that's exactly true. And, you know, this actually gets into um, the biblical definition and a conversation about modesty. And, you know, a lot of um, a lot of churches and a lot of, you know, the, the current culture would suggest that modesty is only about looking at as prudish as possible and not um, having any sort of sexy aesthetic. But if we actually look at what the Bible says about modesty, it's about not bringing attention to yourself in a way that would uh, reflect poorly on Christ. And so in terms of clothing, it's about fitting the the uh, the decorum and the respect of where you're at um just like you know when the bible talks about um being arrayed you know as as a bride waiting for her husband you wouldn't um you wouldn't wear something that is is tattered clothes or something undignified um to a wedding your clothes speak about your attitude and what you uh, what your overall worldview is. And I would respectfully suggest everybody uh, listening to have Senator Fetterman wear a hoodie and gym shorts to the floor of the U.S. Senate. That is actually immodest. And mm-hmm. it's not, that's not what, again, our, our typical 
um, churches would say about the definition of modesty because they're only concerned about, you know, an, an overtly um, sexual related connotation. But modesty goes much beyond that. And I think it is genuinely immodest for a senator to come in with a hoodie and shorts on the Senate floor. Do you agree? Absolutely. Absolutely. It is. It might sound strange, but it's actually ostentatious to do that. It's screaming, look at me. Think of the level of immodesty it takes to essentially force the Senate because of your refusal to acquiesce to the standard accepted uh, standards. Think of how immodest it is to essentially force them to change the rules just for you. This isn't coming out of nowhere. It's coming especially for this person. This is the tyranny of the unreasonable. And the level of hubris and immodesty, like you said, is screaming, look at me. He's, he's saying, look at me, look at what I'm wearing. He's making an intentional choice to do this. He's capable of, he's capable of satisfying the old expectation, but he refuses to. That is this degree of, as you said, immodesty. It's ostentatious, and it is saying, look at me, and everything focuses on him. Yeah, and that's a really good point as well, because, you know, we've had 250 years of American history and um, the, the House and Senate chambers, and obviously styles change. And so with that, the expectation of what fulfills decorum and dignity and, and reasonable attire will change um, over the years. But but what uh, what is expected and what is actually modest versus immodest is still an objective standard because it isn't that look at me um, and you need to change the rules to fit me because in 250 years of, of the House and the Senate and in Congress, uh, we've only had this one exception now for a senator who wants to specifically and expressly uh, show that he doesn't need to be bound by the rules. And so this does go into a bigger principle of saying, well, where does that end? If it's for the dress code, you know, what about then saying, I don't care about coming into work today. I just want a proxy vote and you need to accommodate me in this. This is what the left always suggests is that they always want accommodations instead of saying, I will be respectful to authority. I will submit to the rules. And, and and this is, I think, overall just an act of rebellion. Absolutely. Absolutely. It is, as you said, as we see all across the left, it's a tyranny of the unreasonable. It's a refusal to acquiesce to the accepted standards that are not unreasonable standards, by the way, completely reasonable. And it's a tyranny of the unreasonable to force, to force the hand of those who uphold the standard to bend, have them bend down to a lower standard and, or a lower, not even expectation, but just whatever the unreasonable want. And as you said, things change. The style has changed over history, but we know exactly what's going on here. This is not a natural style development that still ref, reflects assent and decency and dignity and honor and decorum. No. We know exactly what we are seeing here, and it reflects a broader civilizational degeneration and a tyranny of the unreasonable. And this is not some change from 1800 to 1900. This isn't the adoption of the modern suit from 150 years later. No, that's not what's going on here. And anybody listening to this knows that if you were to show up to the Senate floor, you wouldn't be wearing what he wears. 
No way. Right. You would think and this is going work. backwards, and we do need to uphold our standards. And O.W. Root, uh, thanks so much for your commentary. You can follow him, Necktie Salvage. And as Justin Amash said, if you can't dress professionally for work on the floor of the Senate of the United States, then do us all a favor and get a different job. Well, there you go, Fetterman. We'll be right back with more here on Jenna Ellis in the Morning. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio. The discussion over abortion and the GOP primary has continued to heat up and not lessen. And this is generally over the comments that Donald Trump made on Meet the Press. And so we will play that clip for you again. This is cut two. Mr. President, I want to give voters who are going to be weighing in on this election yeah. a very clear sense of where I think you stand on this. I think they're all going to like me. I think both sides are going to like me. Let, let me what, but what's let going President, to have to Mr. happen President, is you're going to have to... Kristen, you're asking me a question. What's going to happen is you're going to come up with a number of weeks or months. You're going to come up with a number that's going to make people happy. Because 92% of the Democrats don't want to see abortion after a certain period of time. If a federal ban landed on your desk if you were reelected would you sign it at 15 are you talking about a complete ban a ban at 15 weeks well people people are starting to think of 15 weeks that seems to be a number that people are talking about right now would you sign that uh, uh, i would i would sit down with both sides and i'd negotiate something and we'll end up with peace on that issue for the first time in 52 years uh, i'm not going to say i would or i wouldn't I mean, DeSantis is willing to sign a five-week and six-week ban. Would you support that? You think that I, I goes think what he far? did is a terrible thing and a terrible mistake. A terrible thing and a terrible mistake. So uh, Dana Loesch, who a lot of you uh, know, a conservative uh, commentator, tweeted this yesterday. Republican politicians, if a reporter pitches you a softball about whether or not you'd sign a 15-week abortion ban if one made it to your desk, this is how you answer it. You mean if lawmakers elected by the people deliver to me a bill restricting abortion as birth control after 15 weeks, the time period on which the majority of Americans, Democrats, and Republicans have found consensus on after years of polling? Yes. Well, joining me now to discuss is my good friend, Abby Johnson, who was a former Planned Parenthood worker and now a stellar pro-life advocate and the founder of the ministry. And then there were none. So, Abby, um, what has really, frankly, surprised me and maybe it shouldn't have, but it but it genuinely has um, over all of this conversation surrounding uh, President Trump's comments and saying that this is a terrible thing uh, that DeSantis signed a heartbeat bill is that so many of his supporters are simply saying that's fine and they're defending this instead of being principled and saying, while I might be voting for Donald Trump, I, I absolutely reject what he said. I disagree with that. What happened to Republican conservative politics that we can't at least call out people based on ignoring the principles that supposedly we hold dear? Well, I think this is, I mean, I think this is kind of par for the course with people who are Trump apologists, right? So, I mean, you know, what he calls Kaylee McEnany, who does, who did such an excellent job for him 
what milk toast macaroni, um, and we're still not exactly sure why he calls her a name, but um, you know nobody comes out and says that's terrible. You should stop doing that. Um, he, you know, is constantly berating women about their looks, their appearance, their clothing, all of this, you know, Trump apologists never come out and, you know, say, hey, you know, I'm, I, I get it. Like, I like it. I like what he does, but that's really bad. I mean, these are supposed like Christians. These are, you know, supposed, you know, conservatives. Um, we should be against, you know, playground bullying, but yet their chosen candidate is doing it day in and day out. Um, we should be able to say as conservative Christians, look, this is who I think will do the best job for our country, but he needs to be held accountable for his actions and his behavior. For me, um, this is not somebody who I believe is appropriate to lead our country at this time. And, you know, I'll tell you why. I, you know, he he was not my my choice in the primary before. Um, and he's certainly not my, my choice in the primary right now. Um, and that's because I did not, I do not believe that he did hold true to the promises that he said, uh, you know, he was going to, um, he was going to deliver on in his presidency. Um, Everybody, you know, comes out and says, oh, you know, he was the most pro-life president, he's the most pro-life president. Um, Donald Trump is an opportunist. And he's a businessman. And so he's going to do the things that he believes rally his base. I don't believe that Donald Trump was ever necessarily a pro-life man, but he needed the conservative ticket. And so he said what needed to be said. Um, I and, And that's okay. You know, that's okay with me, right? Like, I don't, I, I'm not, I don't really necessarily care what his deep down convictions are. I just really care that he's moving the ball forward on the issue of life. Um, but now I feel like his real convictions are coming out. If he can't even say, yes, I would absolutely sign any pro-life bill that came across my desk then he should not be any pro-lifers candidate, period. Because the pro-life issue, if you are a pro-lifer, the pro-life issue should be the number one thing that you are voting on. More than any, you know, more than the Ukraine issue, more than the economy issue, the pro-life issue, murdering babies in the womb, the most egregious human rights issue we've ever seen in history, That should be the primary thing that you are thinking about. That should be the thing on the forefront of your mind when you are going to the polls. And if your candidate in the primary cannot even say, it won't even come across his lips, I will will vote. If it was a complete ban, ban, I'll vote for it. If it was a 15-week ban, I'd vote for it. If it was a heartbeat bill, I'd vote for it. I'd sign it. I'd sign anything. That, that prohibited abortion that came across my desk, if he can't say that, 
He is not your candidate. Well, and I think Abby Johnson, um, you know what you're what you're saying is is so right that we need to vote our values, and we also need to remember that this is a primary. I mean, certainly in a general election, um, there are often times that we vote for a lesser of two evils, or we vote for the best possible sure. candidate that may not um, ultimately reflect all of our values. And I think a lot of people did that in 2016, and then were. Uh, maybe pleasantly surprised with some of the the promises that were kept uh, with Donald Trump. But in the primary, when we're looking at uh, at options really between the top two candidates here, I mean, it's, it's going to be either Trump or DeSantis. So looking at right. both of them, we have an opportunity as conservatives to step back and say, who is the best champion for our values? And I feel like for, for some odd reason, it's like the country has never gone through a primary before. It's like we all just forgot what happened uh, and what happens in elections and are so siloed into personality, tribalistic politics that uh, you know I was seeing even some friends of mine who have been ardent pro-life advocates are out there suggesting that it doesn't matter because they want to support Trump anyway and I'm thinking what happened to your principles why isn't it okay to say I am Christian first I am pro-life first I am a values voter first and in the primary Whoever it is, whether it's Trump or DeSantis or anyone else, they have to earn my vote. They have to show me why my what way their candidacy candidacy reflects my values and will protect and preserve life for the future. Why aren't we doing that as a country? Well, Trump doesn't believe he has to earn your vote, right? He believes that if you are his supporter, he autom- if you are his supporter, he automatically gets it, and he showed that when he didn't come to the debates, right? So he doesn't have, he, he really doesn't believe he has to earn your vote. He just automatically gets it. And that is, I believe, the way that that his supporters feel. He can do anything he wants. And that, to me, as a voter, that ticks me off. That makes me not want to vote for him. Because it's like, no, sir, you you do not just automatically get the vote. You do have to earn my vote. And Trump does not have the track record, not that I see, that may, that, that has earned my vote. I mean, let's just be honest here. Planned Parenthood was funded at astronomical uh, highs during his presidency. You know, he said that he would defund the abortion industry. He did not. He continued to fund them um, at really historical highs, um, higher than when Obama was in office. Um, he, you know, he keeps saying, you know, I overturned Roe, I overturned Roe. The Supreme Court overturned Roe. And yes, he put in justices, but we didn't actually know if they were going to overturn Roe when he put them in. And that wasn't a promise that these Supreme Court justices made. When they when they went into office, we weren't actually sure what they were going to do. Um, so that was really because of the Mississippi Attorney General um, and and the Supreme Court. Um, and let's not forget that it was Trump that really ushered in this COVID nonsense. I mean, he's the one that really ushered in you know the whole Operation Warp Speed that gave us these deadly vaccines. 
And he will never come out and say that that was wrong. He'll never come out and say that was a gigantic mistake because his ego is way too big um, to ever apologize and say that was wrong. And, and so, you know, here we all are. We are in a primary, like you said. It's like people have forgotten that we do have choices here. For me, Trump is not the choice for me. DeSantis is a clear winner for me uh, in the primary because he does have a record that shows leadership, that shows success, that shows that he makes promises and he keeps his promises, unlike Trump. Um, but I think you're right. We, I mean, I, I have seen the same thing, Jenna, where even last night I saw one of, uh, you know, a very dear friend of mine made the same type of excuse. Like, well, he's talking about strategy. No, he wasn't talking about strategy, actually. He didn't say, well, strategically, I think what DeSantis did was a bad idea. That's not what he said. He said that signing a heartbeat bill that protecting babies in the womb against abortion at five or six weeks was a terrible idea and a terrible mistake. He did not say, strategically, I think we could do something different. That's not what he said. He said it was a terrible idea and a terrible mistake. How can protecting life in the womb ever be a terrible mistake? It should not be a terrible mistake. And I was a Democrat for many, many years. And I tell you right now, him saying that he's going to work with Democrats on the abortion issue is the most foolish thing I've ever heard in my life. Democrats are not going to work with him on the abortion issue. I mean, get serious. If he actually believes that, he is a fool and he is completely delusional. We're talking about people who will not vote to protect a baby born alive after an abortion attempt. We're talking about people who will not vote to ban abortions past 20 weeks. And he's over here saying that he's going to work with Democrats to find some sort of compromise on abortion. Give me a break. That yeah, will not never happen. The Democratic Party has taken a clear stance on abortion and that is that they want elective abortion for any reason, access to abortion for any reason through all nine months of pregnancy, and they want it taxpayer funded. That is the Democratic Party's platform. Right. And and yeah, they want state funded abortion on demand. They're not going to change that. And it's and it's really sad when Democrats believe in their worldview and their religion more than conservatives are willing to stand up. And and for a lot of people listening, I mean, if you are as tired as I am of this primary and of the tribalism and of conservatives going at each other over, um, you know, whether you're a Trump supporter, DeSantis supporter or whatever. Um, I think there's a huge opportunity here, like what you have said, Abby, which is to remember that well before Trump even ever run in, ran in 2016, you know, well pre-political, let's talk about our rights as being pre-political. And let's remember that we are Christians first, that we mm-hmm. are, uh, we have an obligation to serve Jesus Christ first. And let's all, instead of, you know, fighting a lot of this or trying to 
you know, twist ourselves into pretzels to defend something that our candidate, our preferred candidate is suggesting. Um, and that goes on, you know, on all sides. I mean, I, and I've, I've defended Trump for years. I mean, I used to work for him. And so it's a new thing for me to, uh, to openly, um, you know, call out some of these things, but we need to, because there, there was, this wasn't his posture in office. And if I am truly a conservative and a Christian, I am going to say that's a wrong position that pro-life matters, that um, it matters that these promises that candidates are making are in line with my values as a Christian. And so in just the last minute I have with you, Abby, um, for people who, and I know people on um, who are listening to this, want to be better pro-life advocates, um, how can they connect with you and your ministry? Sure, yeah. So my website is abby, A-B-B-Y-J dot com, abbyj dot com. Um, they can listen to my podcast there. Um, I mean, obviously my podcast is all over the place, but um, my podcast is there. They can uh, get my books there. They can connect with my ministries, and then there were none in pro-love ministries. Um, I've got articles there, all kinds of information there. Um, obviously, my socials are linked there as well. Well, thanks so much, Abby, and continue to be a wonderful, amazing pro-life advocate. I so appreciate you and your commitment to principle. We'll be right back with more here on Jenna Ellis in the morning. The medical establishment has been playing God with the lives of innocent babies for decades now. Many have grown callous because it seems surreal to think that over 64 million babies have been lost. Preborn will not stand silent, nor should we. We cannot stand by and let babies die at the hand of abortion. That's why preborn exists, to stand up for those who cannot defend themselves. The only defense for these precious babies is their heartbeat, which begins at just three weeks and can be heard on ultrasound by five weeks. When a mother making that ultimate choice hears her baby's heartbeat and sees the precious life inside of her, the majority of the time she will choose life. By sponsoring an ultrasound for a mother, you are being the voice of the preborn. Please join Preborn in the cause for life. For just $28, you can be the difference between the life and the death of a child. Just dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby. That's pound 250 baby or go to preborn.com. That's preborn.com. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the morning on American Family Radio. Well, September 17th was Constitution Day, and as our friend Professor Nicholas Giordano writes in Daily Wire, it will largely go unnoticed. He continues, this is a shameful and clear example of our nation's decline. American civic education no longer exists. And national pride continues to plummet as we witness an unprecedented assault on the Constitution. Every American should realize that the Constitution's demise will inevitably lead to the fall of the United States. So Professor Giordano joins us now. And uh, good morning, sir. And I think you're absolutely right. And it's uh, it's it's really sad, honestly, that September 17th is not known uh, nearly as much and celebrated in America as the 4th of July. But it's a very important day. 
It certainly is, and it is sad. It's depressing when you look at today the average American, and they're completely unaware about this day. I mean, I'm sure on September 17th, everyone was paying attention to the football games as opposed to our nation's constitution, which is the document that really makes the United States such an extraordinary country. When we look at it, we're one of the youngest countries in the entire world, yet we have the oldest codified constitution, and so that speaks volumes. The reason it's so important is because our constitution differs from the world's, all right? It's a mechanics guide to government of how the government's supposed to operate, who has the power for what. But more importantly, it places limitations on our government, limitations that prevents the government from infringing on our rights. And as less people know the Constitution, understand the Constitution, or have read the Constitution, we've seen these gross abuses of power that are plaguing the system, from the institutions abusing their power, but also from the elected officials, the public officials. And all we have to do is look at the coronavirus, where state legislative bodies were bypassed, where the government determined when, where, and how you could practice your faith, when they determined where, when you could leave your home and what you must wear and what stores you could go to, whether schools are going to be open or not. It was really stark. You had Governor Kate Brown come out and actually tell their residents to inform, to call the police on their neighbors if they see more than six people in their house. Now, that's not the United States. That's more reminiscent of what they do in uh, North Korea or under Saddam Hussein's Iraq. But the amazing part was how little pushback we saw from the American people. And when you try and understand, well, why didn't the American people speak up and speak out? It's because most Americans, they don't know the Constitution. They don't know the limitations placed on government. More importantly, they don't know their God-given liberties. Yes, so so incredibly well said, and I think that it speaks volumes that because we don't have as as good of a civic education in America, and we don't know our rule book, then when it's challenged, we don't know how to fight back, and we may have some arguments or some uh, innate sense of well, that's that's not fair. The government shouldn't be able to infringe, but we can't exactly articulate why. And so this notion of constitutional versus unconstitutional has largely become, I think, in common parlance, and, and especially when, when you're looking at the fights in Congress, just basically the difference between what I like versus what I don't like. And according to the people who want to infringe on liberty and want to take more power than is actually given to them, then they'll say, oh, yeah, it is con- a constitutional. Of course, uh, our rights aren't completely absolute, like the New Mexico governor saying that just based on some ridiculous declaration of emergency, she can essentially suspend the Second Amendment for 30 days in her state. Absolutely. And that's a great example, because you see how they were so successful during the coronavirus that they believed that they could push the boundaries under this idea of a a national emergency, a public health emergency, that they could go into other areas of our life. And and the idea that a state governor can unilaterally declare that the Second Amendment is suspended is ridiculous. I mean, Article 6 of the Supremacy Clause states that the Constitution is the supreme law of the land, and you cannot conflict with the Constitution. But she's pushing the envelope, and the reason that she's pushing it is because people cannot defend what they don't know. I find it remarkable that after 13 years of schooling, 
90% of my students can't differentiate between the American Constitution from the Russian Constitution in the constitutional exercise I give them. Now, that wow. to me, when I ask the students, how can you not see that you weren't reading the American Constitution? I get plenty of responses, well, we were never assigned to read it. So you're talking in 13 years of schooling, they may have glossed over the Constitution, but students were never forced to read this document. Now, I'm teaching at the college level. By the time they get to my course, they should be able to almost recite the Constitution. They should at least be able to break down Articles 1 through 7 and the first 10 amendments with the Bill of Rights. But they can't do that. And we have to look at the K-12 through system, where only 13% of students are proficient in American history. Only 22% of students are proficient in American civics and government. What that tells us, there's no other country in the world that doesn't teach their history, that doesn't teach their culture, that doesn't teach their traditions, and yet that's exactly what we're doing here in the United States. Yeah, and I'm speaking with uh, Professor Nicholas Giordano, who is also the Campus Reform Higher Education Fellow. And you're absolutely right. It's it's astonishing to me uh, among students and even among adults who can, of our own initiative, go out and get books and read and, and learn. And even if our K through 12 or college education or even law school education failed us, then we can go and learn on our own initiative. I mean, when I was going through law school, and you and I have talked about this before on this uh, program, even in constitutional law class, we didn't read the Constitution. I went through law school with, if if I had not had a good civic uh, education because I was homeschooled by my parents, and so we we learned American history, we learned world history. I'd read the Constitution. I was you know well aware of of civics and uh, what a a republic means. Um, If I had gone just based on my higher education classes, including including law school, I would have never had to read the U.S. Constitution. And that is that is shocking, especially when we're teaching future lawyers that the Constitution is just the body of jurisprudence that comes out from the Supreme Court. We don't even have to go back and actually ask the question, does that accurately interpret and reflect what our supreme law of the land says? And so how can we change this um, in specifically K through 12 and higher education, but also for adults who... Uh, you know, as they're listening to this, thinking, "Yeah, I don't, I don't know Articles one through seven, and and I, I need to have a more robust understanding of my supreme law of the land, so that we can go out and challenge some of these things, and we can go to our legislators equipped with real solutions based on our supreme law." Well, that's why we're highlighting this at campus reform, because we see the dangers that lie ahead as more and more people don't understand the Constitution. And, and it actually does, it's a simple fix. I mean, it, it's not like it would take much. In the K-12 through system, particularly in ninth through 12th grade, we should separate out American government from social studies. Uh, social studies is a vast subject that encompasses geography, economics, American history, world history, and, and government and civics. Well, separate it out. Teach it as a separate course that it strictly focuses on governing in the United States and what our civic roles and obligations are. And that's one thing. That's how you create an informed citizenry. At the college level, I mean, I think it's ridiculous that in the constitutional law class, people aren't reading the Constitution. And some of the professors are the problem. They disregard this document. They, They denigrate the document in their classes. And 
they actually call for the violation of the Constitution. Just one quick example is you had a Harvard law professor and Arizona law professor write a piece for The Atlantic stating that China had it right when it comes to governing the Internet and censorship, and America had it wrong. Well, these are the people that are teaching the future lawyers, the future judges, the future politicians, and that's dangerous. So, so we need to stop with destroying our own Constitution uh, to try and push a political agenda. But also parents have an obligation. You know, school doesn't just end at the end of the school day. When they go home, it's the parents' responsibilities to sit with their children, to teach them the stuff that they're not learning in school, including the Constitution. It, it's not a long document. It's seven pages printed out. Read it with your children. Go over, explain its importance. And it's also beneficial because it'll provide a refresher for you. And so I think, you know, if you're not getting the education in school, parents should be doing it at home because this is the document that stands between a free country and an authoritarian country. And we're seeing this movement towards authoritarianism uh, continue to grow because people don't know it. Yes, and we need to be equipping the next generation to be able to stand up, and we need to be equipping ourselves first so that we are standing up and we'll still hand a free society to the next generation. Um, but also, what about then, Professor, the uh, the books and the textbooks? Because I remember as I was um, teaching constitutional law on uh, the the collegiate level, and, and so this was for undergrads who were preparing to go to law school and um, at Colorado Christian University, and as I was looking at the the textbooks that are out there I, I remember the one that was offered by the department and recommended as i was going through um just the initial parts of it it it, it was so mind-boggling to me that it was actually suggesting that more rights were preserved in the the Chinese and Russian constitutions than the American constitutions because they had more things enumerated and it was completely misunderstanding our entire notion of separation of powers, the, the, what the Bill of Rights is doing. And as I was reading this, I was I was thinking, this is not appropriate to teach my students because it's, it's fundamentally flawed in the philosophy that it's espousing. So what would be your advice for parents who are looking to supplement their children's education? What are the good resources? The beauty is that they're all free. So in my courses, I actually stopped signing a textbook years ago because I saw the textbooks, and they were terrible. Uh, they, they really wouldn't explain American government all that well. They'd get into topics before the, the students actually knew what Congress does or what the executive branch does. And so you just read the original documents, read the Declaration of Independence, read the Constitution of the United States, read the Federalist Papers, the Anti-Federalist Papers. I think students uh, don't get enough credit. They are plenty capable of reading a document and formulating their own opinions. They don't need someone else's interpretation of the Constitution for them. Our Constitution is pretty basic and straightforward. So I think that if you look at the founding fathers and the original documents, that's a great place to start. And then you could dive in deeper. You know, when we talk about something about the Second Amendment, well, look at the letters that Thomas Jefferson wrote where he referenced the right to bear arms. Look at state constitutions in the, the 13 states, the original 13 states, and what they said about bearing arms. Things like that go a long way. These are free resources. Anyone can find them. All it takes is a quick Google search. 
Yeah, really well said. Uh, Professor Giordano is the Campus Reform Higher Education Fellow. And, you know, this reminds me of what um, what my parents did in homeschooling me was uh, and my brothers, which was to go out and actually aggregate their own resources instead of just relying on a formulated textbook and opening that and saying, OK, well, I'm reading this and they haven't necessarily vetted it and they're not. Um, then, then the parent really isn't actually engaging in teaching as much as as uh, then the textbook is just uh, a substitute for whatever is being taught in the classroom if they don't know what exactly it, it, the, the textbook and, and the philosophy is suggesting. And so it does take a little bit more time, um, but for parents who are genuinely interested, um, go and vet resources. And there are you know, a lot of, um, of really good resources on the U.S. Constitution, on American history, but be careful what it is that you're selecting. Um, so I think that that's, that's really, really good advice. And, and for parents um, to, uh, to understand the U.S. Constitution, there's even a free app out there. I have one on my cell phone so that anytime you know, that uh, we're talking about anything, I can just pull it up and I can look at the original language. And you're right. It's incredibly straightforward. Um, so just in the last few uh, minutes that I have with you here, sir, as well, um, how can people support campus reform and, uh, and bringing these types of issues to the fore? Because I think it's so important that we have to understand civics so that we can engage um, as conservatives and as Christians in our society. Everyone could visit campusreform.org. We highlight the insanity that's going on on college campuses, this far-left agenda that's being pushed on the student body. And, you know, it's when we look at the student body, these are the future leaders. We, we don't treat them like they're the future leaders, but they are going to be the future leaders. Our education system has completely collapsed. In the worldwide rankings, we continue to drop. Our universities uh, are pushed out of the top ten. A lot of times uh, China is now gaining on us when it comes to our university education that we're providing. And we have a, a real problem in the United States because – there's not a superpower that exists that didn't lead in education, engineering, technology, and innovation during their reign. As our education system crumbles, how long are we going to be able to maintain a sole superpower status? How long are we going to be a superpower? Without the Constitution, as we stated, we don't have a country. And so we need to make sure that the American founding is intact, that people have a belief in the system, that we're all linked together through our documents and through our history. Yeah, well, really well said. Professor Giordano, thanks so much for joining today. And parents, you have one year until the next Constitution Day, so you have a year to prepare and maybe a year to teach uh, your students at home uh, what the Constitution means so that next year you can celebrate it more robustly. And um, exactly what we're describing here is why uh, after I went through law school, I looked and said, okay, is there a book that actually... Uh, teaches what our founding means in terms of the biblical worldview and the apologetic for why we have morality in our law. And I looked for one, there wasn't one. So I wrote one and it's called The Legal Basis for a Moral Constitution. You can get that anywhere uh, that books are sold at Amazon, um, Christian bookstores, all of that. The Legal Basis for a Moral Constitution. If you have students in high school or college, I would really recommend that as a resource because I wrote it because I wanted to understand it and give parents even more tools. I'll see you tomorrow morning. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast may not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio. 
We'd like to thank our sponsors, including Preborn. Preborn has rescued over 200,000 babies from abortion, and every day their network clinics rescue 200 babies' lives. Will you join Preborn in loving and supporting young moms in crisis? Save a life today. Go to preborn.com.